You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On January 28, in 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff, and it killed all seven crew members. Millions of viewers at the time were traumatized, including children. A social studies teacher was on board, also killed in the accident. What we found from that was the investigation uncovered there was a faulty O-ring, which is essentially the circular gasket that seals the right rocket to the booster, and that had failed due to being in very low temperature. At the heart of that issue wasn't engineering. The heart of the issue was culture. Welcome to HeadX, Martin. Oh, hello, Carl. That's a different way of starting our show, isn't it? And um, for anyone that feels that they've tuned into the wrong program, you're absolutely in the right place. There's some very interesting thoughts that you've shared there about the criticality of leadership and culture in making sure that mission-critical initiatives in institutions succeed. And um, very interesting thoughts and way of starting today's episode as we think about the, the next phase in the development of our universities. So I wrote, a, wrote an article, did some research and wrote a paper on that, uh, that issue about 10 years ago as to what happened. And in the weekend, I was having a conversation with some leaders around culture and what's going on and hybrid working and can we actually change culture and why is it important? And we're still in a position where people don't understand the value of culture. And I think the NASA explosion and coming to terms with the idea that that O-ring that I mentioned was found to be faulty by several engineers, but it was never elevated to senior levels because of fear of doing so. It was actually more important for their personal safety in their career to not mention it. And as a result, there's catastrophic implications. So when I look at some of the organizations that we work with both together and also out of sector, that's really common, that there's a good news culture that can become very pervasive inside organizations so that Leaders sort of feel, you know, they feel like they're doing the right thing. In many instances, probably most instances, they are. But if there is something that's, that's um, you know, it's gone awry, it's really important that there is channels for them to hear that information. So moving into, you know, today's podcast, I thought that's probably a good theme for us and um, to explore a little bit. Well, I think it's a really important issue, Carl. I mean, um, at the best of times, it's challenging to be able to hear when you're running a big organization of 5,000 staff with 50,000 students what... What's happening at the coal face, what everyone thinks, you tend to, in leadership positions, be surrounded by a small number of people. They, set, they tend to become preoccupied with telling you what, what they think you want to hear. Um, so if you're not listening and, and uncovering voices from deep into your organisation and from places that aren't used to just telling you what you need to hear, you can be sure of one thing, which is that you won't be hearing what you need to hear to take the organisation forward. Especially in a, in a world now where you're sort of artificially connected through through Zoom and, and Teams and, and not really getting to some of the side conversations. You know, you would need to make quite a concerted effort to, to mine for that information. Well, it's funny that you should bring up the issue of the O-ring and the, and the explosion from one of the most high-tech situations. I mean, we've got technology that has saved universities over the last two years and I think many commentators are seeing that technology is now going to be the making of universities in their next phase but what your story is about is about is how people are interacting in technology-rich organizations and 
we've got to get that combination right. We've got to look at what the technologies are that will take our universities forward. But unless we listen to, engage, and communicate effectively and lead people in those technology-rich environments, we, we just won't be able to make the best of the new techniques and new technologies that, that need to be embraced and the new ideas that need to be embraced, wherever they may come from, that are going to make our universities thrive. Mm, and partnerships. We're already seeing some really interesting partnerships. Some of the things that you and I mentioned six or eight months ago are now starting to be seen by the sector and, and seen as possibly new ways of doing things. You know, partnerships with with LinkedIn, partnerships with other tech providers, Fiverr Learns developing as a platform. It's essentially acquiring everything in its path. Um, some of the consulting firms now are now partnering in, in a much more uh, deep-seated way with the traditional universities. It's a super interesting time. So who have you got for us today for our interview, Martin? Our interviewee today is David Lloyd, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of South Australia. He's been there for a number of years now. And that introduction we've got is a perfect segue to the messages that he shared with me just recently. I think we should give it a listen. So today's guest on HEDEX is David Lloyd, and David's been the Vice-Chancellor at University of South Australia now for coming up to nine years, and he's recently taken up the role of Deputy Chair of our peak body, Universities Australia, in May. Um, I think, David, you've served on the board of that since before the, the pandemic. David's the Chair of the Committee for Adelaide, is a member of the Board of Advisors at the ARC, and he previously chaired the ATN Group of Universities in the period 2015 to 2017. A great guest for us today. David, welcome to HEDEX. Thanks, Martin. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm good. And um, David, I'm, I'm, I recall first hearing about you taking up your role soon after, uh, I, I assume it must have been soon after you, you arrived in Adelaide. I think it was from Dublin. And you initiated what appeared to me at the time to be quite a radical way of using technology to give voice to, as it appeared to me, all in the uni, University of South Australia community, as you sought to get input to the development of a new strategy. I wonder if you can remind us what that was all about, perhaps outline what it led to in the development of a new strategy. Cheers, Martin. I mean, so I came down here in uh, January 2013, and uh, you're right, I'd been in, in Ireland before that. I was in Trinity College, Dublin, um, and Trinity's 399 years older than the University of South Australia. Um, so it had a certain way of doing things. So it was a very much a different institution. But UniSA is actually very, very like the university I attended when I was in undergrad and a, and a postgrad myself in Dublin, Dublin City University, a new uni. Um, when I was a researcher, which is like donkeys years ago now, uh, I used to have a collaboration with IBM uh, on IBM Research in Almaden in I used to go over there quite frequently and work in IBM as a kind of a visiting researcher. They had a tool there that they used to actually crowdsource ideas from within the organization. And they called it Jam Technology. And they started to roll that out probably around 2011, 2010 as a product nationally and internationally. And I always wanted to try it. It was one of those things where I'd seen, I had seen the influence that it had in the organization where everybody had an equal voice, where it was absolutely a flat communication and, and, you could build on ideas and I thought that'd be a great way to get a kind of a take the temperature of a whole university in one go so uh when I came down here um I rang the guys in IBM and I said I really like guys I really want to take this in um and so we brought in we did the, the first jam in in a university set, uh, setting in anywhere in the world um the United Nations had used it and you know governments had used it but, but nobody had used it in a university before um so it was it's and it was sort of, you know, it was a social network 
Um, it was a, a mechanism for conversation. It's like a, a multiple blogs. I, I, if if you weren't in it, you, you can hardly kind of articulate how it worked. But but if you can imagine a telethon, right, where you've got multiple stages, where you're going between stage one is where you're going to talk about the future of education. Stage two is where you've got philanthropy. You've got guest stars coming in every hour on the art of conversation, and then people run with the ideas. That's what we ran. We ran that over. Uh, oh, I think. First time we did it was like 37, 38 hours. It was it was, it was a really long period of time, um, and we were on online for the whole the whole show. Um, and in it, you, you get thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas, right? And because you're allowed, you can like ideas. The good ideas kind of float to the top, and they get um, amplified. And you know, I had a feeling for what I wanted to achieve as a vice chancellor, so I had the outline of, of what I thought that the, the strategic plan would look like. But what we were able to do is test it. And, and say, you know, we might go in this direction and see whether it resonated. And a lot of things did resonate, but then what really added value for us was we got things we didn't expect, right? So in, in we had, a, and, and I'll give you an example of the, of the, the like the guest stars we had. We had uh, Charlie Bolton, who was, the, who was the head of NASA at the time. And he was, he joined us on online from his kitchen where he was talking to students who'd never get to talk to head culture. Right? And it was about the NASA culture. So you, you couldn't have that conversation in a normal strategic planning session. You just wouldn't have it. But here we are, the, like, you know, probably the best example of, of, of can-do attitude in, 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 in human history in terms of NASA's ability to do things. Talking to our students about culture, talking to our staff about culture, and then that goes into cultural competencies in the strategy. Um, there was one uh, person who worked in our, our teaching innovation unit, our learning and teaching unit, and the conversation that she started cost me $50 million. <laughs> she made a suggestion that we, um, we'd, we, we'd, we'd create uh, our own um, sports and cultural activity center, which would be the place from which people would graduate. And that wasn't in any of our capital plans, but it was like, why don't we build something in the city, which would be a hall for us, quite literally a $50 million idea. Um, and that came out of that jam. It wasn't on the plan and it made perfect sense and people loved it. And so when we built it, everyone could see that you've taken ideas through to fruition. They can actually see themselves in the plan. And that was the most important piece. Everybody had a voice, there were no dumb ideas. Um, we, we talked about everything and we had so many things left over that like when, you know, five years after that plan, there was still plenty left, you know, and we could take them forward again because, you can, you know, it takes a long to implement things in the university setting. The ideas didn't fizzle out. So we, we did a second one in 2016 where we kind of checked in where we were going and the uni was uh, 20 years old at that stage. Um, and I was really taking the temperature to make sure we were on course to, uh, and, and, to, and to amplify some of those ideas again. So I, I found it incredibly useful. I think other organizations have taken on board that idea of, of equality of voice, but that platform was just phenomenal. Um, it was a great tool. I think that the problem is once you do it twice, you know, doing it again, it's kind of all hat. So um, now, now we talk about it, but we do it in slightly different ways in terms of we bring people together and give them a say. Well, that's a really, um, I mean, at the time, it seemed like a really bold thing. I'm, I'm really impressed to hear that you found the value in repeating it and found enduring value in the ideas that came forward. And it, it seems to me a great example of some quite radical thinking. And my next exposure or encounter with what I consider to be the, the radical thinking that your leadership um, has brought to our academic world in Australia was must have been about the same time, I guess, as, as that second jam, when I read about an academic restructuring that you were putting in place at, at the university. And my understanding of it, I'm sure you'll correct me if I've got it wrong, is, is that rather than organised groups of academic staff around traditional disciplines, which is common in, in many parts, or, or have separate structures for teaching and research, 
and and they do appear to be the dominant two approaches in most universities. You, you appear to be arguing to cluster groups of academic staff around the courses they were teaching together, and with the primary focus being on the interests and experience of their students. Have I got that right? Uh, yeah, it's that's, that's a reasonable approximation of what we were trying to achieve. Um, I guess when I when I looked at universities through just the lens of someone from the outside, I think universities have a fixation on, or maybe less now, but, but certainly if you go back in the last maybe decade, universities have a fixation on portrayal of structure. I mean, we, they thrive on hierarchy and structure, and, and, and an awful lot of university web pages used to be, this is how we're organized, and these are the faculties and the departments and the disciplines of X and Y and Z. And then ultimately, then you know, you, you might find out what they do after you've wandered through the web page a while. And I, I, when I when I got here, I was very very keen that we wouldn't do that, that we would portray what we did and how we were organized was like really not, you know, it wasn't important. And I had this um, contrarian view that disciplines existed and and the disciplinary identity exists to make people feel good about what they don't know because people come together in those kind of like minded groups and they feel very in their in group and 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 they become knowledgeable about the the, the, the silo in which they're in. And silos are fine because silos allow you to be specialized, but they do kind of. They do kind of isolate you if you're going to be a community of scholars. Um, and we had uh, 19 things, structures in the organization, um, which is quite a lot of things. Right? And then actually, when I got here originally, I think we got 22 or 23, and we'd, we'd been kind of bringing things together. So um, one of the things I wanted to do was, was actually reduce the number of silos in the organization. And the way to reduce the number of silos is to reduce the number of things, because you know, if you've got 19 things, the, the, the most efficient way to arrange them, you're still going to have 20 gaps, right? There's still going to be that, that number of, of um, you know, spaces. And, and so um, what I said was, you know, we, and on the teaching research piece, um, I, there is no teaching and research divide. I think it's an artificial construct where, where institutions have, have said, oh, we're universities because we conduct research. Now that's true, right? But that doesn't mean that that's all we do. We, we, we research and we educate and we make our curriculum research informed. But there's become this kind of teaching research divide in some way, which is very artificial. Like the most research intensive organization planet are probably 40, if you take them as universities and not institutes, are probably what, maybe 30 to 40% research intensive, which means they're, they're, they're 60 to 70% teaching intensive if you flip it the other way around. So, so you need to be able to focus on, on the core business of the organization and research doesn't make money. Research is a, is, a, is a cost. We make the investment in research to advance knowledge and then we improve the curriculum, but the, the teaching is what actually keeps the lights turned on and it's actually the core function of the organization to, to transfer that knowledge into, into the, the minds of our students. So um, I basically said to our guys, if, if, if we were uh, to think about this as, a, as a, an organization that makes things, right? What do we make? And the default is to say, oh, we produce graduates, right? But we don't. I don't think we do. I don't think we produce graduates. I think graduates produce themselves. I think what we produce as an organization is the product is our curriculum, right? And that's our intellectual property. And, and the program, the degree is the thing that we make. So why aren't we geared to make that as good as it can possibly be? and allow the consumer of the product, who becomes the graduate on the way through, to actually benefit from us putting the very best into that product. And the best way to do that is to have, you know, the resources of the organization in product lines. And so I said, well, let's look at our courses. Let's look at what they, 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 they have in them and look at the natural alignment of them. And let's cluster the people who are in those areas around the, 
the, the courses. So we did, um, this is like the lesson of don't run a third uni jam. But what we did was we brought people together into, in, into the hall, which we built with the $50 million from that uni jam. And we, um, we brought uh, hundreds of staff in over sequentially over, over the nights of, of, we had a graduation. So, so the place was, was all set up and we, could, we had lots of space. We brought hundreds of staff in every night for like a week gave them pizzas, soft drinks, and we gave them playing cards. And the playing cards had every course, every program in the organization. And we asked them to cluster them logically. What are the things that sit together and what are the things that that, that sit apart? And funny enough, in some, in some cases, people go, why are we still teaching this? So was, that, was a different, that was a different conversation. But when you clustered them and you said, we're trying to make them, like, we don't want something to be too big or too small. It's like that Goldilocks piece. They clustered into seven, seven logical kind of piles of things. And when we looked at those seven piles of things, I was very keen that from a, just from a, uh, I don't know, again, the contrarian perspective, I didn't want them to be faculties or schools or, you know, so we call them, we call them what they are. They're academic units. We have professional units and we have academic units. So I've got seven academic units. They've got seven names, which actually talk to what they do. And they produce product within there, which is the culmination of teaching and research, which is the degree program. Um, It's not. I don't think it's, it's, to me, it's quite logical. And again, in, in going to a restructure, it's the best consultative, consultative process you could have because literally we're saying we can go from 19 silos to a smaller number and we'll have, have a better, more efficient organization. It's not about um, right size in the uni to make it like, you know, to reduce headcount. We, we, we went through, a, I think in the process, we were talking about in the tens through the change process of, of, of job changes. We created opportunities for people, and we ended up with seven units that people had designed themselves. And um, and, it, and then, of course, <laughs> crazily, we decided we'd implement it in the middle of COVID. But um, that's a different story. Uh, my, my, my the, the last of my trilogy of David Lloyd's um, views from a distance, if you like, my most recent exposure to some of your innovation as a leader in our sector, was what when I was reading about your very recent new venture with Accenture as a partnership activity, but as I understand it, it's targeting a quite different and new approach to online international education. And the, the press that I read about it suggested that you'd personally played a lead role as vice chancellor in bringing that about. H have I got that right? And if I have, can you, can you tell us more about what that venture is, how it came about and where it's now up to? Yeah, yeah. Um, ask my staff to tell you I have a very low boredom threshold <laughs> and I get involved in things that I probably shouldn't. Um, oh, look, Accenture uh, came to South Australia um, in 2019 with an operational base. And, um, and I was very, very familiar with Accenture from, from Europe. Uh, the, the, they didn't have as much of a kind of a brand recognition um, level here in Australia. Uh, people talk about the big four, but, it, but Accenture is... Accenture is a massive company. We're talking about an organization that's got like hundreds of thousands of employees. And um, as, a, as an enterprise, the, they're, they're the consultants that, that, that Google will talk to when they want to consult. So they're at that level. So, so for me, they were a very exciting company to try and build a relationship with. Um, we brought them in and they set up a base in, in the uni uh, in our innovation and collaboration center back in 2019. And we spent quite a while talking about what we might do together. Um, and then the chair of um, Accenture, ANZ, um, Bob Easton, was sitting in my office one evening and we, he just said to me, you know, what's like, what would you like to do? You know, what, what's the true north of this relationship going to be? I was thinking, I'd spent quite a lot of time thinking about 
what universities, because we were in the pandemic, what we were going through, what would differentiate us. And there was, a, there was an increasingly a question which was out there about the value of universities as well, which I was starting to think was kind of a, a dangerous question. Um, and I thought to myself, well, in the context of, you know, you, we can, we can, our, our real, um, I guess, secret sauce as organizations is the ability to accredit knowledge. We can, we can warrant that what you have is useful for doing a thing that you're going to do. That, that accreditation, that, 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 and that autonomy to, to recognize your attainment and assess what you've done is very important. And I was also increasingly aware that, um, the landscape and business is, is changing so rap rapidly right now that all the skill shortages pieces were out there. It was clear that curriculum wasn't keeping up to be right contemporary enough as it should be for the consumers of, 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 of the graduates. So I said to Bob, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to shake up um, business education. And I'd like it to be something where we're able to bring the best of what you do and the best of what we do to not only to produce employees for you and your clients into the future, but also to engage and do uh, professional development and, and upskilling and reskilling and uh, the assessment and accreditation that only a university can do in the context of an organization with, as I say, 500,000 employees. And, um, and the concept of us creating an academy was born. Um, we call it the Innovation Academy. And uh, we had a back and forth about what it might look like. Um, and the first cab off the rank for us is a, is a new degree in um, digital business that we'll, uh, we'll have the first intake in mid-year next year. But in essence, that's got our content, Accenture's content. Um, it's informed by what they know their, their, their employees need from an upscale, reskill perspective, but also what their clients want in terms of graduates. Um, and we feel we can bring it not only nationally, but also internationally. Um, and to me, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of, of actually making sure that what you do is contemporary. And for them, it's a way to, 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 to get skills so it's a win-win okay so um three big things that i i knew and, and know of you having done and and you've described us so eloquently here so far in this interview you've done the first jams ever by a university and then repeated it three years later you've um you've organized your academic units around products and what customers want if i can call them that and you've formed a really big partnership with a global player from a university in, in South Australia. What, what, what do these three things add up to with regards to what your philosophy is about leadership in our sector? And how do they relate to what you might share with us as the current and future strategy of the University of South Australia? Yeah, um, I guess the second part is easier to answer. Um, I mean, the, the strategy for the University of South Australia is to be Australia's University of Enterprise. And that to me is contemporary curriculum for our graduates, uh, contemporary research for our partners, and, and relevance, which is built on excellence. And that, that you know, you, when you, you, can, you can articulate that quite shortly, but what it really means is what we do, what we invest in what we do, and we do it well. And we, we validate ourselves by the job rights of our graduates and the, and the partners and the repeat custom we get with our partners in terms of meeting their needs. I mean, by, by volume, we're the most industry-engaged university in Australia because we, we, we do engage. And um, it's really a case of not, not overselling what we can do, but being focused and clear. Um, the philosophy piece, I guess it comes down to, um, I do think that there's a, there's, a, there's a worrying tendency to homogenize the sector. And I, I get concerned when I hear 
um, external voices talking about the university sector because it's actually it's 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 not a homogenous sector. It's thirty nine or forty, whatever way you want to count the number of organisations who who should have a differentiated mission and actually should be assessed through different lenses because some of them are 30 years old and some of them are 150 years old and some of them are in remote uh, and regional communities and some of them have like we have more than half of our students are from low SES backgrounds who are first in the family and they have different learning needs to people who've got 99 ATARs who've been to private schools it's but yet we there's a tendency at a policy level and at a thought level to say universities so I was very deliberate. My philosophy was define what the University of South Australia is and, and focus on that and not try to be what policy or what the, the kind of common perception of what a university is to all people. And um, we're no, I want us to be known for what we do. And I want people to choose to come here to study because of what we offer. I also want people to come here to work because of the way in which we do business. And if they don't like it, it's people are choices. So it's a very open kind of choice driven piece. But let UniSA be comfortable in its own scheme to articulate its own mission and, and to live that rather than to have it kind of, you know, homeopathically diluted to, to some sort of, you know, semblance of an institution which is bland and beige. Yeah. I wonder, just as we move the, the, the interview towards a conclusion, we started our conversation about the first jam in any university in the world and, and a strong commitment to digital technology and a desire yeah. to experiment as a focus on staff engagement. That was nine years ago. Yeah. Is, that, is that more or less important as a topic for a vice chancellor in any of our very different, perhaps more different in the future Australian universities right now? I think right now more than ever, staff engagement is, is, is critical. Um, I, I, I really feel that um, the COVID impost, which drove us to Zoom, has actually disconnected us from our peers. Um, and while, ironically, I could have a technology-enabled engagement process to flatten an institution where we could have a conversation about everything that's important, the technology we're using right now is not conducive to that. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's created a, an artificial engagement. So, you know, a normal meeting, you can go off in tangents and you can have conversations and people can, can have sidebars and breakouts. Whereas if you have 20 people on a Zoom call, you have to have discipline and rigor and it, it, it doesn't have that flow. Um, I think we need to get back together again as people. I think that people have really are struggling with the, 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 the relativity of, of control. They've lost control as well. And, and I think then they feel like done to them. So, so for me, if I look to my 2022 and 2023 in UniSA, I want my staff to recognize that they, the autonomy is coming back, the ability to actually spend your money. I mean, UniSA has weathered the COVID storm remarkably well. And that's testimony to brilliant staff who did very, very heavy lifting. And on the way through, we protected jobs. So we were in a really great spot and, and, and much luckier and better off than, than many others in the sector. But even th with that, I know my staff are tired and I know that they want to see a return to, to flexibility and autonomy. So we need to have those conversations, bring people back together and, and have them connected again. Just the last question, David, it's one that I ask to every VC I speak to on this podcast series. Um, and have done in over the last 12 months. Are, are you enjoying being a VC at Australian University right now? Yeah, it's uh, nine years in. Um, nine years in, I've had nine ministers for education, five ministers. <laughs>
which uh, to me speaks speaks volumes of, of the political stability of the country. But um, I am. I, I look. I, it's a. It's such a privileged job. It, to work in a, in in university is fantastic. To, to actually lead a university and to engage in so many levels. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a brilliant job. Um, it's. It's so different on every single day from every on every single hour. So it's incredibly stimulating. I am still having fun. Yeah. Um. And and I do enjoy it. I think we just need to get ourselves to a point where the combative nature of, of perception of universities is just addressed as you know we're, we're for the public good this is not some some you know money sink that that taxpayers money is being poured into and it gets wasted we're producing human capital and it's incredibly important it certainly is and you've articulated that really clearly on this podcast today so look david um as, as someone that is you know for an observer like me over the last nine years has been at the really leading edge of innovation and trying out new things and for now, one of our longest serving vice chancellors, I guess, um, you've outlasted um, lots of, of federal ministers and maybe we'll see, our, see out a few more, who knows. But for joining us on HeadX today and sharing your views so generously and openly, thanks very much for being on HeadX. Appreciate it, Martin. Thanks. David Lloyd's a very interesting character, somewhat different to some of the other VCs that we've we've interviewed. I, I think he's 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 got that interesting sort of Dublin vernacular where they're not short of a word ever and they describe things incredibly well and with great passion. So his storytelling ability was incredible. I really enjoyed that. Well, it's, it's just different and innovative, isn't he? I, I can remember him first arriving in Adelaide and first arriving at that university. I was actually sitting in the executive group of another university. It was going through its strategy at the time and a, a bit of a discussion took place of knowing that, um, that David had been through that jam session to try and find ideas across the organization and deep into the organization should we try that at our own and there was just a, a great reluctance to do so there was a fear that losing control from the top table of where ideas come from and and how to manage those that would be taken forward was we just weren't ready for it at the time but I think you just have to look at the freshness and the and the radical thinking behind that succession of ideas that is now repeated through nine years of leadership and think, isn't that the future for our sector? Yeah, I think so. The The idea of not listening and not having open channels, it's becoming a significant liability for all organisations. They've got to find a way to do that. Uh, if it starts manifesting employee behaviour, you're certainly not going to reach your, your potential and you're certainly not going to see... Um, look, even things like the the flags that were raised in the Royal Commission for us around misconduct. I mean, the only reason that the senior leadership and the board of a variety of uh, banks and aged care organisations weren't aware is because they didn't have the channels in place and they certainly did have, didn't have the culture set up to be able to identify those key risks that have turned into big reputation disasters for them. Well, we've had some great insights into this in our most recent episode of HeadX, where Kent Anderson, from his time at the side of our ministers, was suggesting that the sector wasn't doing enough listening and its awareness of what the policy drivers were um, was lacking and we talked about how that applies more broadly. But I, I can remember one of our very first episodes with Jane Den Hollander who's now taking up her third stint as a Vice-Chancellor in Australian University. She used that lovely expression of, of gold at the base of the pyramids and, and of how staff had been the heroes of the hour in March 2020 in saving our, our universities. I think we need to think about gold in different ways. It, the gold of having great new ideas and being able to, to blow the whistle on things that aren't going well and things that could be done better, 
we employ these brilliant people in our university. We employ them. We employ them for their qualifications, for their insight, for their innovation, and for their expertise. We really need to empower them to to help us find ways forward. And that means finding novel ways of giving them voice, allowing them to engage, and us being able to listen to them. And culturally, it means embracing curiosity. You know, that the NASA example that we spoke of, there was a very high-profile guy working at NASA um, called Bobak Fedowsi. And he, was, he had a mohawk, which is quite an interesting thing for somewhat of a conservative technical uh, organization. But he was a flight engineer, and he really embraced curiosity. And he was one of the people that, that we interviewed to understand this cultural challenge at NASA around the O-ring and how that can never happen again. So I think the concept of curiosity as a cultural tenant or cultural platform does, does allow you to open the doors, open the gates to new information. I loved what um, David was saying about you know, the 38-hour jam that they had people ringing in, they stayed open, they got thousands of ideas. You know, For us, we've streamlined that over the last 10 years in terms of our hack process, but we've, we've learned from, we've stayed curious and learned from the best. I think IBM Jam is, is still brilliant, to be honest. So bringing that together as an online component where you net the right people, you dig for ideas, you classify those ideas in a, and prioritize them before you stand up a set list to hack on in person, it does everything. It brings the, the breadth of insight from the organization, plus it brings the community together again. And you would have heard David saying he feels like we've missed that connection and we've lost out on some of that vibe, you know, the side conversations and some of the richness that actually drives performance beyond the things that are more you know straight down the line or linear well isn't this a great idea for for university leadership teams to try some new things i mean we've come out of all of that restrictive way of working in so many parts of our nation now we've got new opportunities to put things and build things back differently uh, uh, the, the use of technology struck me but the idea of working with partners and listening to partners as he reflected on sitting in his office with the, um, the chair of Australia and New Zealand for Accenture, as he talked about um, the, the use of IBM as a partner in doing that original jam, as he, as he has since published the work that um, UniSA are doing with LinkedIn Learning for pathways into, into UniSA degrees. These are partnerships that we haven't, not only have we not let go from the top table of the, genera- of, the, of the sovereignty over the generation of ideas, we haven't let go of that to our partners enough up until now. So I'm fascinated by the prospect and the early results that we've seen of using our hackathons with, with leadership teams mm-hmm. to find different ways of sourcing lots of ideas from within the guts of the organisation, allowing outside views from partners to come in and to have that facilitated, and to have new focus conversations of leadership teams of what are the new ways of doing things that can respond to the challenges of the time. I think it's a very exciting process. I think it is. I think the way that organizations engage with those partners is going to be really important. So typically, uh, a, a client or you know, an organization would go to one of the consulting firms and suggest a, here's a brief and they'd respond to that. I'm now seeing a, a multi-consultancy uh, response to those briefs. You know, we've got a joint business relationship with PwC because they know we specialize in the area of culture and reputation so heavily that if there is one of their clients that has a challenge there, we collaborate with them and we move forward. In other instances, we've worked with Boston Consulting for the same reason. But I, I feel it's probably important to say to the sector, before you suggest or select a particular big four consultancy, make sure that you've actually spent the time scoping the entire brief so you have 
first-class experts in every particular area collaborating and coming back to you. So you're not going to have to redo it, redo it, do it again, find a solution post. Couldn't agree more, Carl. I mean, we're, we're delighted to be working with so many partners from within the sector in terms of current universities, but also the relationship that we have with OES, for instance, as a sponsor of our HeadX Live events. Mm. Here's a really innovative edtech firm that's doing some great things for a number of universities. I'm delighted to be having a chance this week to join a um, EduTech Asia conference with being hosted by Google. There are some world-class technology organizations out there that bring very different perspectives to the opportunities in the sector at the moment. And for us at HeadX of, of being the facilitators and the bridges of all that thinking in working with leadership teams, I think is, a, is, is an exciting place to be. I think the whole industry is now needing to start moving at a different pace and it's exciting to be on board. That's all we have time for today on HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. Thank you.